And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you. And when you came out of Egypt and, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So in our world, both within, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the Christian and the, the non-Christian realms, there is a major, uh, I think, misunderstanding about God. I saw a great example of it uh, just recently uh, with a celebrity pastor as he was talking and bringing the people together. And he says, you know, we have come together today and we're going to worship God. And then kind of as an aside comment, half jokingly, half seriously, he said, the New Testament God, not the scary Old Testament God. Um, something along those same lines, I was reading a thread within social media where between a Christian and a non-Christian as they were talking about Christianity and they were discussing the things they agreed and disagreed about. But the one area where they agreed was that uh, they, they, they liked the New Testament God. The Old Testament God was this, you know, capricious, cruel, you know, genocidal maniac, and they didn't want much to do with him at all. Well, church, here's the problem with that. One of God's attributes is immutability. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's holy and perfect. Therefore, he does not need to change like we need to change. Um, the book of Joshua is actually a great resource to, uh, to us as we address kind of this false dichotomy that is propagated in, in both Christian and non-Christian circles. Uh, later, when we get into some of the, the later chapters of this book, we are going to see some hard commands from God, which actually feed the false narrative that God is cruel and capricious and genocidal. And, and when we get to those places, we're going to see how those actual commands are, are also part, they're important for the immutability of God because not, you know, God is holy and he is just and he is righteous. And these types of events are a necessary outworking of God's holiness and righteousness. We'll see that in, uh, actually, that'll probably be after the new year. Uh, but this morning, when we come here to Joshua chapter 2, uh, this is a, also, again, a great example of God's unchanging nature. Because what we see here is, you know, the New Testament, yes, it reveals the loving kindness and grace of God. But here in Joshua 2 with the story of Rahab, you see the exact same thing. He is forever gracious and loving. And this is part of the story of Rahab. And specifically, the grace of God is just on display here. And we're going to look at four different aspects of God's grace within this story of Rahab. Let's start with the scandalous grace of God. Um, when we think about, I, I actually, let's pause for a moment. When we think about God's grace, uh, that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. And sometimes just to make sure you know, it gets confused, we get confused with God's grace and his mercy and his loving kindness, these different things. So let's just make sure that we're level set because I don't want to go a whole sermon and, and, and you think one thing and I'm thinking it's something else. God's grace is his undeserved, unmerited, unearned love and favor. It's unearned, undeserved, unmerited love and favor. An easy way to separate and remember grace versus mercy, because of God's grace, um, he gives us like his love and his favor, which we do not deserve. Because of his grace, he's giving us blessings in life that we do not deserve. With his mercy, he is not giving us what we do deserve. These are the differences between God's grace and mercy. So we're going to be talking a lot about God's grace. This is God giving us things that we do not deserve, specifically his love and his favor. So in our world, God's grace is actually uh, misunderstood at opposite ends of the spectrum. 
So for example, in the non-religious world, just humanity in general, I would say kind of presumes upon God's grace. Again, this is the negating of God's holiness and his justice and his righteousness and an over-elevation of his love and grace. As if, you know, okay, yeah, I, I, I may mess up, I may sin, I can live however I want, but it's okay because God has to be gracious to me. And so there's this overemphasis of God's grace on the one end of the spectrum from irreligious humanity in general. But then on the other end of the continuum, religion has taught, unfortunately, for many years, almost like a quid pro quo uh, aspect to God's grace. In other words, we get God's favor and we get God's grace and his loving kindness because in some way or another, we deserve it through our moral living, through our obedience to him, through coming to church, through being a nice person. It, it's, it's earned favor that we get. I got God's grace. And why did I get God's grace? And this person did not get God's grace because in some way I'm smarter, better, you know, whatever than that person. And that's what religion teaches us. But what Rahab's story tells us is that both of these extremes are wrong. And in fact, what, when we think about God's grace and the nature of God's grace, it is scandalous in nature. Look at who Rahab was. Just consider who she was. Consider her in light of that era. Consider her in light of just what we consider to be moral living, whether you're religious or not. And when you consider her from these perspectives, she just fails. I mean, she doesn't just get like an, you know, a D. She's like at the bottom. I mean, she, you know, she busted the curve. I mean, everything is bad with this woman. She, first of all, she is a woman. Sorry, ladies. But in the ancient world, that was a check against her, a knock against her. She was pagan. She was Gentile. Right? She was a prostitute. She was a liar. She was a traitor. Think about that. That is all in Joshua chapter 2. She is a pagan, Gentile, prostitute, lying, traitor, and a woman. All of these things. There's nothing, literally nothing about her that commends her to God. According to you know, the religions of the world, according to just a simple you know, societal norms, there is absolutely no reason why God would give her grace. She is the last kind of person who deserves God's grace. And she is exactly like us. That's what the scriptures reveal. That's why I love this story. We should all see ourselves in a similar way. You know, in Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now you may say, that's not me. I, I, I just, I, those verses don't. This is what your creator says about all of humanity. This is who we are. And the great news about this scandalous grace of God is it reveals that he delights in saving people who do not deserve salvation. And so this story is great news. It's the gospel for us this morning because what it's telling us is that we can come to God through Jesus just as we are. Just as we are. We don't have to have a reclamation restoration process before we come to Jesus. Just as we are. 
Your past reputation doesn't matter. Your present struggles with sin, it's irrelevant. You don't have to address that. Your abilities or inabilities don't matter to God. Come as you are. God's grace, He overcomes all of the things that might be a hindrance from a human perspective. He overcomes all of it. You know, Titus 3 actually points to another aspect of God's grace that we find here in Joshua 2. His, his grace is scandalous, but it also is sovereign. The, the people of Jericho, when you think about it, are no different than you and I today. In, this, in verses 8 to 11, it's kind of insightful what Rahab says here. that The people know who Jehovah is. The knowledge of God was readily available to them just as it's readily available to people today. All of Jericho, she says, knows what's coming. All of Canaan knows what com- is what is coming. And they are terrified. Rahab tells them, yeah, we've, we've heard about you guys. We've heard about, uh, jo- uh, about Jehovah. We heard about the parting of the Red Sea and how you came through it. And then the armies of Egypt were destroyed. We heard how you destroyed the Amorites. And then you destroyed Og and Sion and Bashur and, and Moab. And you've taken out all these strong armies and even cities that were walled cities. Maybe they weren't as great as Jericho's city, but they were still strong cities. And you've been defeating everyone. And we are terrified. We're petrified. That we're next. You know, what's going on here is part of what's feeding their fear is the, just the, the sheer anomaly of what's taking place. You see, in the ancient, in the ancient Mideast, uh, the ancient Mideast was pantheistic. Think about Egypt, right? You had all of the different gods, and they, they looked like animals, and, you know, the sun god and the moon god, and all, I mean, just hundreds of gods, and this is the case throughout the ancient Middle East. And these gods, however, were tended to be bound by geographical borders. So the god that you might worship in, uh, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, that's where his domain was. But when you came over to the western side of the Jordan River, you come into a new god's territory, and now you have to give you know, obeisance and, and acknowledge this new god because your, old, your god that maybe you were born with, he doesn't have any power here. You can still respect your old god, but, but no, now you have to, you know, you know, bow the knee to the God who's in your territory. Jehovah's not like this. It's what you have here is, is you have God, the God of the Israelites, and no matter where they go, it's obvious that he is the God of gods because he's destroying the people who worship the gods in their own geographical area. And so the people of Jericho realize we, we worship Baal Peor, but Jehovah can defeat him even though he's coming into Baal's territory and into Baal's boundaries. That means nothing now because the God of Israel doesn't respect boundaries. And so these people are petrified. But think about it for a moment. Even with the revelation that they have about God, they refused to turn from their idolatry and take steps to make peace jehovah and the people and so it begs the question why did rahab of all people in the city why did rahab believe and the rest of the city did not it certainly wasn't because rahab was this fine upstanding citizen 
She's a prostitute. And by the way, prostitutes didn't have any higher reputation 4,000 years ago than they do today. I mean, look at her. She didn't deserve it. But from Rahab to us, to those who we pray for, salvation comes to us because of the grace of God, which he dispenses according to his sovereign plan at his divinely appointed time. That's why it happens. You know, we talked about Titus 3 a few moments ago. Paul said, listen, all of us are born idolaters, enslaved to our passions, rejectors of God, a very unflattering picture that applies to every single one of us. None of us are accepted from it. But then he continues on and he says this in verse 4. So this is the kind of people we were, but... I just love that little conjunction throughout the Bible. I told somebody recently, my two favorite words in the Bible, but God. (laughs) But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, stop right there. That is an expanded phrase that means the grace of God. The loving kindness of God is synonymous with the grace of God. But when the grace of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. Read the next phrase with me out loud. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. At the appointed time, Christian, God extended his grace and mercy to you. At the appointed time, God sent the Holy Savior, Holy Spirit to you. He entered into your life. He regenerated and renewed you, giving you a new heart, turning a dead, hostile heart that was at war with God into a living, loving heart that yearned for Jesus. And when doing this, giving us the faith to believe so that God could in turn declare us no longer guilty of sins, but with giving us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, giving us through that uh, faith an inheritance of hope and eternal life. He does all of this, not because we deserve it, not because we check the boxes or the righteous works. He does it solely according to his mysterious sovereign grace. It's incredible. We should sit back, every one of us, and continue. We should have no issue worshiping because the marvel of God's sovereign grace is mystifying. It's humbling. It stupefies me. And what's so interesting about it is how powerful it is. Nothing, absolutely nothing, will stop God from redeeming and saving the people who he has chosen before the foundations of the world to be a part of his family. Even you could not stop God from saving you. And we all tried. We all tried. And this story is great to show us a walled pagan city that had never had the law of God read to them, 
that had never had a prophet of God come into the city like Jonah did Nineveh and preach the truth of God. This walled pagan city had none of those things, but no problem. Not to God, not a problem. He just made use of the ancient Near East gossip network. (laughs) And the truth comes right to the very person that he intends to save. He ensures that a prostitute hears this message. And like he did for us as a Christian, he did that work in her heart so that she, out of the entire city, she believes the message in a way that brings salvation to her life. He brings two servants, two of his servants, right to her door. Now, we're not going to get into the intricacies of why were people of God going to a prostitute's house? Okay. Maybe a, one explanation is that sometimes in the, you know, there's debate, was she actually a prostitute or was she an innkeeper? Because in the, in the Hebrew, the word can mean prostitute or innkeeper. We know from the New Testament, though, that she was at least a prostitute because the New Testament makes it very clear. But perhaps she had an inn, and that wasn't uncommon in the ancient world, kind of like in the Old West where you had taverns, and you know you could get your drink, and you could get a room to stay, and you could get a companion too, all in one, one-stop shopping. And that was something similar that happened in the ancient world too. And so maybe that's what she was running in this portion of her house, uh, but it's, I guess, an ancient version of a bed and breakfast that uh, we, we'll just stop right there. Okay. Don't know why those guys went there. Well, actually, you think about it, you probably do know why they went there. Because, I mean, it's a place where men are coming and going. And so it wouldn't be, wouldn't be all that surprising to kind of lay low in a place like that. But, you know, you think about this story. They come to her. They don't have to argue her into the kingdom. They don't have to debate her. They don't have to convince her. She is ready. And Christian, that, that should encourage us. As we, as we pray for those that we want to see come to know Jesus, um, don't lose heart in sharing the truth with them. Don't lose heart in giving them the gospel. Hardened walled cities and hardened human hearts are no obstacle to God's sovereign grace. They're not an obstacle at all. And when he chooses to pour his grace out upon them, those walls are going to come crumbling down. And the truth that you give them now in love and with grace is what the Holy Spirit's going to use to regenerate and renew that person who you're praying for. There's God's scandalous grace. There's his sovereign grace. And then in verses 11 to 16, we see God's saving grace. I mentioned earlier that God is the same yesterday, today, forever. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, he saves And God always saves by grace through faith. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. It is by believing in God's promises and entrusting ourselves to him because of who he is that our lives are changed. And this and saved, and this is what happens to Rahab. She is literally saved and physically and spiritually. Her faith was genuine, saving faith. It was based on the truth of God and who he is and what was planted in her heart. In verse 11, she she gives the most incredible profession and confession of faith. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above 
and on the earth beneath. There's no geographical borders here with your God. He's God over everything. This is what she believes. And by the way, was she right? Yeah, she was right. In fact, what she says really sounds a whole lot what Moses said just you know, a few months before to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, they have, they have defeated these, you know, Og, what a name, you know. Young people, if you want to give your boy a biblical name, I would highly recommend Og. I mean, that sounds masculine. It's biblical, right? There you go, Og. You know, no middle name, by the way. Don't ruin it. Just Og. Okay, Og. So anyway, um, Right behind it is Bam Bam. But anyway, uh, doesn't it remind you of Og and Bam Bam, the Flintstones? That's kind of, anyway, okay, shut up. She's, so there, she's aware of all this. And, and Moses in Deuteronomy has said to the people, he's brought them together after these battles. And he knows he's going to be dying. He's, he's teeing it up for Joshua to take over command, to lead them into the promised land. And he begins to walk them through all the mighty things that God has done for them, the power of God that has been displayed before them and delivering them out of Egypt and the 40 years in the wilderness and to the banks of the Jordan River. And as he walks through all of those things that God has done and the powerful ways he's manifested himself, he says this to the Israelites, to you it was shown through these powerful things that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. And how incredible is that? That the Israelites, you know, they are, they are following Jehovah and believing in the God of gods because they have actually participated in those powerful events. Rahab didn't participate. She just heard about it. But people don't ever forget that faith cometh by hearing. And as Paul says, in hearing by the word of God. And how will they hear unless we are preachers proclaiming the good news to them? Her faith is genuine. It's real. And you know her faith is real, not only because she professes the truth of who God is, she then anchors the, the, the entirety of her life the destiny of herself and her family. She anchors on God and the people of God and what God says, and then she proves it, that this anchoring is real and not just an emotional decision by how she then obeys going forward, following the commands of God. The New Testament apostles, it's interesting how they point us back to Rahab on a couple of important occasions. And if Hebrews chapter 11 you have this great chapter of faith, hall of fame of faith, right? The, 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 all these patriarchs, and, you know, Cain and Noah and uh, you know, Enoch and Abraham and, and, all, and on down through the, the, the uh, centuries of history, the great prophets of God are mentioned. In Hebrews 11, there's only two women mentioned. And uh, most of them are the prophets and the, the patriarchs. But uh, you, know, you have Sarah who is Abraham's wife. Abraham's the father of faith in a real way. Sarah's like the mother of faith, that couple and how God changed everything through them. The, The other woman you have mentioned is in verse 31, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You know, I've always wondered, how did the Pharisees handle her? 
When we talk about the scandalous nature of God, you know, the scandalous nature of grace of God is that it's, it's something that defies the moral and legal societal norms. And you can tell that this is still you know, a thing because even in the New Testament, it's no longer Rahab. I don't just say Rahab. I mean, she's stuck with the prostitute for eternity. I wonder how this offends the religious minds of the apostles' day. Maybe that's why they kept it on there, to show just the scandalous, sovereign, saving nature of, of God's grace. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The other occasion is in the book of James. You know, in Hebrews, she's there with Sarah, with Sarah and James, the apostle links her to Abraham, and he uses both Abraham and Rahab as exemplars of what it looks like to have truly been saved by faith. That it's not just intellectual head knowledge, that it is a commitment of the life that results in a transformation of how we live. We, and it's marked by obedience to what God says. You know, as if saving her life physically were not enough, making her a member of the covenant people of God were not enough. God demonstrates his saving faith through Rahab in the penultimate way. So she does obey what she's told by these men from God, these two spies. And as we'll see at the battle of Jericho, the city is destroyed, but Rahab and her family all survive. We learn that she will later marry a Jewish man by the name of Salmon. It's actually spelled like salmon, but I didn't want to say salmon this morning, so I'm pronouncing it Salmon. We'll find out in heaven how it's really supposed to be pronounced. She marries Salmon, and they have children, and the children have children. And what's so neat to see as her family line through the Bible continues, children having children, having children, having children, so that 1,400 years later, she is the great, 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 several times removed grandmother of Jesus the Messiah. Our Lord comes to the family line of a pagan Gentile prostitute who was a liar and a traitor. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that neat? How God's grace saves to the utter extent beyond our imagine, what we can even begin to conceive what God does in our lives by his grace through faith. But it does beg the question, how could God do this? How could God extend his grace in such a way to such a person as her, or to such people as us. How can he be graceful to us and be gracious to us and it actually not violate his justice? Because our sins do not deserve grace. They deserve wrath. And that leads us to the final aspect of God's grace, God's scarlet grace, I'm calling it. And, you know, as you look at this passage in the final verses, these men from God, they essentially, well, not essentially, they do, they, they make a covenant with Rahab. And this covenant is, okay, here's what's going to happen. And just like all the Old Testament covenants, there's the, the, require, you know, the blessings and the cursings that take place. If you don't turn us in and you help us escape, 
and you, you hang this scarlet cord outside your window, and you bring your family into your home, and you do not leave during the attack, you and your family will all be saved. If you do, then we're not guilty, and this covenant is now no, is, you know, void. We, we don't have to obey the commands of the covenant. There's a covenant made here. And what, what I find interesting is that with, you know, with God's covenants, he always gives a sign, right? And to, to Abraham, when he gives the great covenant that through you, Abraham, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. And most importantly, the nations of the world are going to be blessed because through you, the promised seed will ultimately be born who will undo the chaos and the devastation of the fall that happens in Genesis chapter 3. At that covenant, when God made that covenant with Abraham, he gave the sign of circumcision. When, when God makes the old covenant with the Israelites, both as they leave, Exodus, uh, leave Egypt in the Exodus and then the giving of the law, he gives the sign of the blood, the blood on the doorpost, the sprinkling of the blood over the Ten Commandments and the people themselves. You, you think about what Rahab does here. The sign of this covenant is this scarlet, blood-red cord. All these signs, church, throughout all of the Old Testament are meant to point us to the scandalous, sovereign, saving grace of our Heavenly Father. They all point us to the ultimate sign of His saving, scandalous grace, and that is the shed blood of Jesus. The scandalous grace of, Jesus, of God is most easily, most readily, most visible when we look at the shed blood of Jesus. Knowing that one day Jesus was going to be cut off at the cross, God makes a covenant with Abraham and he ratifies it with a bloody sign, circumcision, where the foreskin is cut off. Decreeing that one day Jesus would be sacrificed as the perfect lamb of God. God gave the sign of the exodus and at the, the giving of the law with the old covenant where the blood of the shed lamb was put upon the doorpost with Passover, where the blood was sprinkled upon the Ten Commandments and the people of God and the blood of countless millions of animals was sacrificed upon the altar, all pointing to that ultimate sacrifice that would take place on the cross. You know, thinking about this, God predestinated that Jesus would one day shed his blood, blood on the cross for the sins of his people. And this scarlet cord, God, God brings the Israelites into the land before the walls of Jericho where they are greeted with this blood-red scarlet cord hanging down the wall signifying that salvation had come to this pagan Gentile house, that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant had already been fulfilled in that land before they actually fought their first battle. And that the gospel had gone to the Gentiles already. It was waiting on them when they got there. <laughs> Accepting that he was going to go to the cross. Jesus knowing that he's going to justify us before our heavenly father so that God could justifiably give us grace and pour it out upon our lives. Jesus made the blood red scarlet wine of the last supper, the sign of his new covenant, which we enjoyed last week, reminding us of the scandalous nature of God's grace. 
And it's most easily seen through that blood. The scarlet cord of Rahab, the blood of the lambs, the red wine of the Lord's Supper, they're all fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. Every one of them. His sacrifice is why God can remain holy while he pours out grace upon us. His sacrifice is why God is still righteous and good when he pours out grace upon us. Because our sins have already been covered in the red blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the sacrifice of Jesus that would allow God to make the most incredible promise. We sang about it a few moments ago. The words of this verse were in the song that we sang. Come now, let's settle this, he said through Isaiah. Come now, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. The scarlet cord of Rahab reminds us that when God looks at us today, he does not see the red of sin, he sees the white of Jesus' righteousness. And that one day when he appears again and redeems us completely, we will receive white robes of righteousness indicating that we have been forgiven completely, declared righteous and good before our Heavenly Father. The great news of the gospel is that this week, when God looks at us, if you're his child, he doesn't see the scarlet of our sin. He sees the white of Jesus' righteousness, and we are loved beyond what we can imagine. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder of the gospel. Only you could point to the gospel through a pagan Gentile woman who is a prostitute, a liar, and a traitor to her people. Only you could redeem people like her. Only you could redeem people like us. Because we're all in the same boat because of our sin. Lord, for the one here this morning who doesn't know the freedom that forgiveness comes through trusting in Jesus Christ, committing their life to him, just as we and just as these people from the scriptures have done. May the person who's hearing my voice right now who needs that freedom, may you, like you did with Rahab, pound the truth into their heart so that they can no longer deny it. Would you bring them to life? Would you pour the Holy Spirit out upon them so that they have a new heart that is no longer hostile towards our Savior, but understands that salvation is always by grace through faith, and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.